This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. For almost two decades, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. We are currently living in interesting times. While there are many reasons for this, this is definitely one of those eras where rapid technological advances are propelling the change. The past 50 years have increasingly seen the advances of computers into more and more of our lives, but the past decade or so, it's been exceptional. Computers have moved from our workplaces to our homes and now to our day-to-day lives. They have entered our social spaces to where they can now be found in our cars, phones, and our houses. The next decades are going to see major changes in society wrought by the increasingly connected nature of our social existence and the artificial intelligence technology that is accelerating this change at a rapid pace. Optimists see reasons for hope. Perhaps these new AI technologies will make life better for us. And pessimists, reasons for fear. Is a robot apocalypse about to start? It is important to understand enough about the AI technology underlying this disruption to navigate through these changing times. What is artificial intelligence and how has it evolved? What challenges does AI present? Today we'll explore these questions and so much more with Professor Jim Hendler, Director of the Institute for Data Exploration and Applications at Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute and co-author of Social Machines, The Coming Collision of Artificial Intelligence, Social Networking, and Humanity. Jim, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. My pleasure. So uh, I was wondering if you would give us a brief overview of the birth and evolution of artificial intelligence, AI. What uh, constitutes the core elements of AI, and how does it differ from the phenomenon of machine learning? Right. So um, what seems like an easy question is actually (laughs) has many, many roots, many complex things. Most people date, at least in America, the term artificial intelligence to a meeting that happened in 1956 held at Dartmouth where a number of people who were looking at this new computer technology and thinking about the issues of smart computers and, of course, when you consider how much further ahead our computers are today than they were 60 years ago, it's um, quite different. But these were real visionaries and were saying, you know, how could we explore – what we could learn about humans and how they think or could we use humans to help us learn how to make computers do what we might call thinking. So the early work tended to be very um, broad all over the place. How do people solve problems? How do we do language? 
things like that. And always one piece of that has been kind of the issue between do we program things or do we learn things? And one of the early places where a good example of that comes in is playing games. So um, very, very early on, a computer program was written that um, basically learned to play checkers and was able to beat pretty much all the human opponents. But um, it was very, very specialized to, to learning checkers. It wasn't sort of generally learning about things. So there were people who were saying, but then there were other parts of the field. Um, nowadays, for example, if you use tax preparation oh, yeah. software, a lot of that is based on what's called rule-based technology that came out of artificial intelligence of the 80s. Um, the military uses a lot for planning. Um, a lot of the AI is sort of embedded in applications and things. When Facebook chooses which things to show you and which ones not to, they're using AI technologies. Now, um, and of course, the, a big breakthrough was uh, the Watson program in 2011, which, which beat Ken Jennings at the game of Jeopardy, which really got people very excited because that was a that was a game that was thought of as a human thing, right? So chess, checkers, go, those feel like smart people do them, but they're artificial. Whereas this was you had to know all sorts of stuff about all sorts of things to beat uh, Jeopardy. So one thing you can do is program the computer to to learn, and then you give it the right kind of inputs and outputs and train it up, and it learns sort of the map between them. So that's typically in a super easy sense what machine learning mm -hmm. mostly is these days and there, there's many types and things. So machine learning is part of artificial intelligence. It's not the whole field. And I skipped the part about, you know, sort of the birth and evolution and it's really been a – to use a term from, from the, the biological literature, been a sort of punctuated evolution. So mm -hmm. what has happened is some technique will become powerful. People will be doing things with that technique. Right. So, you know, in a, in a few years, uh, a computer will be driving your car and you'll say, oh, but it's not really intelligent. That's just driving. Mm -hmm. Whereas right now, it seems like it's a complicated thing because only humans do it. Mm -hmm. and, and so the field is really trying to figure out uh, – somebody once said the best definition of artificial intelligence is what computers can't do yet. Yet. That's a great way to say. So what are some of the, you know, when you when you define or give us a sense of what AI is and how it's a how it's evolving, what are some of the key benefits associated with this advancement uh, with AI? And perhaps you could outline for me or elaborate on some of the societal concerns sure. associated with it. So so let's start with the um, the benefits advancement. So one part of what we do is we perceive, we see, we hear, we listen. Another part is actually understanding that stuff, dealing with it, making plans about where we're going to go or how we're going to get there. So a lot of the benefits are that the AI technology coupled with the amount of data that's up there, coupled with some new technologies, mostly machine learning, suddenly let us be able to say, you know, take huge amounts of literature and sort of process it through. And the computer isn't really understanding it, but it's doing a better job of helping us identify key places or phrases. So if, if you think about a search engine like Google, it's finding you a whole web page that the thing you're looking for is somewhere on it. Mm as opposed to answering a question. Uh, if you think about something like an Alexa or some of these new other new devices, you can sort of ask them a question and they, they try to find the answer from the web. In fact, a lot of that grows out of the same technologies that Watson did. But then 
you can't really have a conversation with that thing or something. So, so what are the benefits? Well, when there's a whole lot of data, humans are really bad at looking at it all. Right? If I give you a spreadsheet with a million entries and say, you know, what do the red ones have in common? You know, that's not a really human thing. The computer goes through and says, oh, you know, all those have this column high and this column low and seem to have some, some name in column 17, right? And so when we're looking at a lot of the things that actually concern us in the real world today, so one of the projects we did at Rensselaer, we worked with one of our local hospitals, which was trying to work on how they could reduce the rate of people who, when they came to the emergency room, were released and then came back within a couple days. There were like 15,000 different entries in the database for 300,000 different patients. So what we were able to do using these AI technologies is sort of identify some factors that said, you know, when this set of factors hold, that seems to be something that it doesn't cause them to come back. It correlates well with them coming back, and that's another whole aspect of this stuff. And, and that's where the societal risk and concern comes from is very much that this is correlative. Um, there's a lot of concern right now about the fact that the government has announced an extreme vetting initiative that would be done using mostly this AI technology. So we'd learn about bad guys could get – well, if it's not right a lot of the time, right? I mean – even if it's right some of the time, you know, how do we do it? We as people aren't very good at it. You're kind of asking computers to be involved in a decision-making loop where we don't know whether the data is biased, whether the other factors that we're not seeing in the data have more to do with it. You know, there was a famous case in the early days of the um, NSA doing what's called data mining where they were very suspicious of some people because they were contacting, you know, the phone records showed them calling some known terrorists. So the real societal concern is we don't know the boundaries of this stuff. And yet the concern on the part of the AI people is because it has magic name like intelligent and learning, <laughs> we tend to think of it as, as a powerful technology we should use. And meanwhile, on the other side, you have... Um, you know, those of us who really know the technology are concerned that people are overestimating what it can do, thinking the fact that it's sometimes right might mean it's always right. Humans and computers together right now are outperforming either one alone for most problems. So why did you call your book? Or In a sense, I'm wondering where social machines comes from. Why and how do you use it? So the term really has kind of three meanings and – has a long history. The, be the best definition of it was actually in a book called Weaving the Web, which was written by Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web. Mm -hmm. and, and in the book, Tim, in a sort of late chapter, talks about the advent, and this was before Facebook, before Twitter, before anything, so, of systems where humans would provide the creativity, but the computer would provide sort of the bookkeeping, and that together this would be a very powerful social machine. Second one, and the one we mostly focus on in the book, is that because of these advances in AI and new technologies, the the computer is more and more coming into what we might call our social space. So you and I are having this conversation. We've actually put our phones in our pocket and turned it <laughs> off, which is an unusual act now. And you know, in a few years, not only will you 
be able to run apps and things, but your phone will be listening and be able to sort of chime in and say, you know, in the book you said this list of uh, – uh, so it, it could actually oh God, answer some of these questions <laughs> instead of having this conversation. And, <laughs> and the question becomes when would you want that? When would you? So, so where are we kind of – bringing them into the spaces which have been traditionally human, where are they helping us, where, are they, where might there be concerns and things like that. So that's really the one we mostly focus on. And then the third meaning, and this is one where sort of wearing my research hat I do more of, is going back to that original definition, how do we make it easier for, for us to explore how to solve problems using not just one person and one machine, but many, many machines and many, many people. So the network of machines and the network of humans are very different. But for example, um, sometimes when you're trying to solve a problem, if you could only find the other person who knew a certain piece of stuff, that would be really useful. Right now, computers aren't really good at helping us do that. Right, But you could imagine something that was kind of watching what I was doing and what you were doing and say, you know, you guys might want to talk about this or something like that. And, and again, there are, these start with very simple problems. Um, and more and more, as this AI stuff gets more powerful, you start even thinking about the computer being more of a participant in that and less of just an infrastructure. Yeah. And we discussed all three of those with kind of the goal of helping people understand what the capabilities of, of computers are, what the capabilities of humans are, and why the pairing is important. Before you – I mean, it's this combination uh, that I want to touch on. And these are some really – your, your book, Social Machines, does pose these questions. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, um, are automatic computers being developed with enough power – to emulate the human brain, and what are the implications of that? Yes, yeah, so uh, there's the architecture of the brain. So you have a bunch of neurons that connect to each other, and they have a certain mathematical way they they quote compute unquote. You have chemicals in there which we know very little about from a biochemical point of view, let alone how they really deal with thought. Mm -hmm. And then we have sort of we can abstract away from that that messy little gray thing that lives in the middle of your head and say, <laughs> you know, can we talk about what it does? Yeah. So the big change um, with these neural architectures, we're learning ways to get the computer using a brain-like metaphor, and you can get into big fights over just how brain-inspired, um, to be able to recognize objects, to be able to drive a car through traffic, because that's really a person, you know, that's really, you can imagine training a dog to do that if, if you had a car it could drive, right? In other words, the, the difficulty in, in driving isn't so much making decisions about what's going on, it's reacting What's happening? On the other hand, deciding where to go and why you're going there and when you're going there, you kind of feel like that would be a lot harder to teach you. And in fact, that's going to be harder to teach your automatic car to do, right? You're actually going to get in and say, take me to such and such a place, not, you know, get in the car and say, let's go. Could an intelligent computer be your next doctor? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors Returns.
It is important for senior government leaders who are moving on from public service to share their reflections on the work they did and the missions they pursued. Join Michael Keegan as he welcomes Dave Grant, former Associate Administrator of FEMA's Mission Support Bureau, to reflect on his public service career and his leadership roles. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Jim Hendler of Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute and co-author of Social Machines, The Coming Collision of Artificial Intelligence, Social Networking, and Humanity. So, uh, Jim, in your book, Social Machines, you use healthcare as an example to help readers you know, better understand the kinds of technologies that are being used now and not too in the distant future. Um, doctors face an impossible challenge, as you point out. Every year, new medical knowledge grows. How can emerging computer technologies, AI or social machines, how do they help doctors in this area? And, of, of course, that's a very active question both yeah, in research and development. In, in fact, um, I'm currently funded by IBM for something called the Cognitive Horizons Network. It's called the HEALS Center, Health Empowerment by Analytics, Learning, and Semantics, really, by applying these powerful AI technologies. And that's a very big area, people all over this. We're really looking at exactly this issue of what are some of the ways that patients can better find the information they need? Clinicians can find things that will help them with their patients and researchers find. And clearly, the same information needs to go to those people in very different ways. So someone who is researching cancer genomics needs to know a lot of detail. Someone who is treating a patient who's kind of recovered, has gone through the process and now is just in remission but is getting their yearly, you know, checking on things, needs to know are there danger signals that have been discovered recently. That and the patient themselves need to know are their behavioral wellness is sometimes used. So we're talking terms like precision medicine. How do we get the medicine all the way down to the individual? And precision wellness is a term that uh, some of the people in IBM's Watson Health Group use to talk about, you know, how do we make it so we, we figure out how you can improve your own health. And all of that is based on all of this information coming from data, coming from medical publications, coming from things like that, which is overwhelming for a human to try to process. So the question is, how do we find the right kind of information to get to the appropriate kind of person in the right kind of ways from all of these different things? And what are the different ways different people might need to interact with that? That's kind of prelude to the question you were really asking. So how do you really put it together? And, and you mentioned it before. We talked about the fact that you know there are these literally millions of papers written a year in science. Many, many, the preponderance are in medical 
And your doctor, there may be something in one of those papers that if your doctor had read it, might have made him suspicious about something in your situation, not necessarily have solved a problem. So it's not that we want the computer to read those things and say, what's wrong with this patient, which was kind of the, a model that a lot of people still think is kind of a, a goal, but it's not what we're seeing. What we're really seeing is that if the computer can help the doctor see some possibilities that they might miss, note some things, and if the doctor is really the decision maker, using their knowledge of you know, patients, people, then together there may be some power that neither of them alone has. Again, that can be a patient working with information on the web. That could be a doctor working with the patient and information, or it can be the researcher. And so just to give you an example from the book, we, we, we use a case of something that I came across totally by accident. I was did three or four studies, and in all of them, it, it turned out that skin infection was an important aspect of something really bad that happened to someone. So I was looking for something to put in the book, and I said, no. Oh. I'll go looking about skin infection. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't know this stuff. Turns out that there have been that literally thousands of papers written about skin infection since the early 1900s, most of which were written in the past five years, a big chunk of which in the past few years have been identifying that it, ha that it, it, it correlates well with some autoimmune situation. And then in certain mutation situations, it actually can be an indicator of a, a serious leukemia. Now, one in a very, very small number of people who came to the doctor with skin infection has a leukemia, mm -hmm. right? Uh, another thing that often correlates with that skin infection is anemia. So you come in with iron deficiency. So if you come in with iron deficiency, any doctor in the world is going to give you iron pills. If the doctor knows that there are these other things that could conceivably be going on, maybe they would say to you, but, you know, given your set of symptoms, take the iron pills. And if you're not getting relief, maybe you want to come back in a month rather than call me in six months or a year, right? So again, um, if you have a medical condition, very often your doctor is deciding which of several mm -hmm. alternatives to offer you. And, and the computer is good at sort of the math of those alternatives, but not at the human part. So, so again, we're back to that. The doctor has intuition, training, ability to bring in information from things outside medicine. But the computer has the ability to read those millions of documents and say, hey, maybe this is something you need to know. Um, maybe we can display the data in a different way so that when you look at this patient, you realize there's something unusual mm -hmm compared to some of the other patients you've done. And, and, and that's the kind of thing, you know, in a, in a sense, a lot of people say an older doctor is better from the point of view of the human side and a younger doctor is better from the point of view because they went to med school recently, so they have recent knowledge. And the question is, could the human and the computers working together make it so all those doctors yeah. have some of both in a sense? I mean, to your point, it seems like context is everything in this respect um, and that the human element provides the ability to uh, to bridge that gap of context. And, and, and that's your point, I think. At least when I was reading the book, that's what I got is that this whole exponential um, success of the human computer paradigm is because of the human brings the context. 
so you know, going back to what we were talking about, this this deep learning, this neural network stuff. So so what we're getting to is we can show the computer, say, a, a, a photo, mm-hmm. and it will say, you know, there is a person wearing a white dress uh, and looks female, and there's next to them is a, a man wearing a black suit, and there's these other people around and. Some are sitting and some are standing. And so the computer can do this amazing job of labeling and saying, you or I would look at it and say, oh, it's a wedding, right? (laughs) And then you can say, okay, well, what if we tell the computer those are wedding pictures? Okay, so now it learns that what are some of the features of a wedding? Well, but now we look at a different kind of wedding, right? Or or, um, you and I look at the picture and say, that's weird. The groom is wearing sneakers, Mm -hmm. right? Because we know from our history of weddings and culture and all that stuff, you know, if we lived in a different country, a white dress wouldn't imply a wedding. It would imply a funeral. So that's what we mean by context. No matter how much we train the computer, we can always kind of come up with an exception case as humans where we would say, but this is what you would notice or why you would realize that's not really a wedding. We have a wonderful picture in one of these wedding systems, which is from a, a, you know, in kindergarten, they do these kind of fake wedding things, right? The computer, you know, how would you train it that kindergarten weddings don't really make people married, (laughs) right? Uh, You you could conceivably write that rule, but how do you write all the rules and all the things? And somehow we as humans are really good at dealing with sort of the gray areas on the outskirts of the stuff we've learned. And computers are much better at learning kind of within a, a fixed set of things. And, and so a lot of the training data we use for computers, a lot of things like that, we have to decide how much are we showing it, what do we consider good. And we always could add more, but that makes it harder. It doesn't do quite as well. You have to decide what do you train it on and not train it on. So again, do we want to differentiate children's weddings from real weddings? Do we want to French, I don't know, hippie weddings on on a <laughs> bluff in, a, you know, you know, so people wearing sure. funny clothes standing on the side of a cliff in California or could be getting married too. But if you throw that picture into your general wedding picture, suddenly that white dress becomes less meaningful. So, so again, we as humans are really good at kind of thinking through that stuff. And the computer is really good at learning those regularities, but not at learning those weird cases around the edges nearly as well as we do unless we kind of force it to learn that by training it. And then the question is, what did we not teach it and what did we not teach it and what did not teach it? So we don't really have this kind of continuous learning. We don't really have this when you learn in one domain, you sort of are able to take to another. So, you know, if I told you going back to the doctor example, this guy is a, a brilliant doctor. I asked you, do you think he knows how to tie his shoes? <laughs> you know, you as a human would, would look at me like I'm crazy to ask that question. <laughs> well, but seriously, I mean, you know, we, we think – so part of the problem is we use these terms for AI that have, have – that are overloaded terms when we use them in people. But the thing that has learned to be a great doctor at AI system probably wouldn't know anything about tying shoes unless you had trained it to some medical thing that had to do with it. So again, it's almost like breadth versus depth. We're really good at the broad stuff and they're really good at the deep stuff. And a lot of the problems we're facing nowadays, you need to put those two together. I think that leads into the next question about like how AI researchers are, are – how have they been able to incorporate observations about human strategies into computer programs? Yeah, so um, there's – again, we have a lot of 
different technologies in the AI toolkit. So again, these deep learning ones are really now making big breakthrough in these perceptual issues. They're doing some language tests. So like when you use a chatbot or something now, it seems like it's actually, quote, intelligently doing it. But if you go a little – if you start straying off the topic, you can pretty quickly realize you're not talking to a human. And there's some famous cases of people who've really tried hard to build things that would fool people and have fooled them for a while. And then eventually they say, you know, this isn't making sense. Um, and, you know, you can see that even if it's not an AI system, right? When Every now and then I get something on Facebook that claims to be from some old friend of mine. And I'm like, well, cool. But then after like three or four interactions, why would this person be asking for that information? It just doesn't ring true. And and we talk like ring true and, and we don't know how to do ring true on computers. So the question is if I'm helping you figure out um, – uh, a good example is military logistics. So we're, we're putting a bunch of stuff on a helicopter that's going to go somewhere to do some task or have some soldiers do some task. What do we put on that helicopter? Human may not remember that, well, at some point when we park it, we have to put this thing in front of that wheel and that thing in front of that wheel. So you could have rules that say that. But another way you could do that is say, you know, every time we've done this in the past, we've done – we've included this. Maybe there's a reason. Um, we may want to look at things from a point of view that's not really sort of what you get from learning but from, again, this larger context. Uh, why are we putting winter boots on a shipment that's going to Iraq, right? We did that in the early days and we're getting better at not doing that. Not so much because we're using the learning part of the AI but we're using the decision-making part of the AI with more data about what's come from the past. You start with perception. So how do we know what's going on in the world and affect the world? But then when you get into that decision-making part, the stuff you were just really asking about, that, right. that smart part, right? You have kind of three different things in there. So there's memory. There's how did I do this before or things like this. There's uh, what we might call reasoning. So what are my options? And there's decision making. So given those two, how do I decide to do? So you come out tomorrow morning to drive to work and your car doesn't start, right? There's not a, a, a correct answer about what to do. And a lot of it would have to do with some of these contextual figures. I, I don't have to get to work today on early. I don't have any early meetings. Maybe I'll just take the morning off and get the car fixed. Uh, oh, my gosh. I've got this important meeting in half an hour. I'm calling a cab and I'll worry about the car tomorrow. On and on. We make those kind of decisions routinely without even thinking about them. And, you know, how do we get the computer to do some of that and incorporate that or to help us? So, again, it might be able to – again, even with current technology – is there a garage open near me? Uh, you know, how long would it take me to get an Uber or Lyft car over here? Things like that. Those I can't answer based on my memory. I have to see what the current situation is. But that I might use that solution to solve things really is still very hard for computers. So we're looking at these different things. And the big the big challenge to us, and I yeah, talked about some of these a minute, how do we put them together? Yeah. How do we take these things that are kind of from the old AI, which was sort of – think of it as rules and and logic and, and knowledge and this new stuff we're getting from learning and start to say, how do we bridge these things? And again, right now, a very good way to bridge those things is often a human in the middle. Mm -hmm. But 
as we want more and more AI capability um, in, in certain domains, then clearly we need to sort of figure out how to put those together. And that's where I was going to the next question was like, how does interface technology need to change in order for humans to be – to have a more symbiotic relationship with the machine? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So, so the um, so in the book, one of the things we go through is some of the difference between how humans understand language and computers understand language, and we use a lot of examples of ambiguity, mm-hmm. right? Where the the structure of language really doesn't tell it tells you some stuff, but it doesn't. So I I, I use a famous uh, example. There's a sign near a prison in uh, New Mexico that says. Uh, hitchhikers may be fleeing convicts or something similar to that. So should you pick them up? <laughs> right? Well, gee, I should pick them up. They're running away from the convicts. Or no, I shouldn't pick them up. They're convicts who are fleeing. Now, now from, from your world knowledge, you would say, OK, hitchhikers may be fleeing convicts. I shouldn't pick them up. If I say refugees may be fleeing, uh, you know, war, then the answer is, wait, I just – the words are in the same relation, but but the implication, I should help them, right? I'm not trying to help the war. I'm trying to help the, the refugee, right? And where in the other case, it's I'm not going for the prison. We somehow have knowledge about that stuff. We have also can make decisions about some of the consequence levels and things like that. If something would really have a big impact, we may think about it much harder than if it's something – doesn't really matter much. Uh, what am I having for breakfast this morning? Gee, I'm out of cereal. All right, I'll grab this other thing. Versus, uh, you know, hey, uh, what am I doing to treat this cancer patient? <laughs> Maybe I really want to make sure I get that right. That kind of thing. So, so putting these things together, understanding that, and unfortunately, the computer right now um, really doesn't understand language. Can't handle those kind of ambiguities. It's back to that context issue before we're doing way more than we used to at both understanding the speech part. So we could get a transcript of this conversation now done by a computer and it would be pretty accurate, whereas even two, three years ago wouldn't do very well and getting better and better all the time. Um, and why is that? Because I, I totally that's coming, done that that's coming, that's coming very much out of that deep learning technology. It is, okay. Or, okay. And some other, tech, other database technologies. Okay. But we're taking what we know about how to do speech stuff on the signal. But now we have so much data. We have all these exa- – so Siri has had mm-hmm. I don't know how many hundreds of thousands, millions of people talking to it, giving it examples of speech and it has responded and the person has either – said good in a sense by taking the advice or not. So Siri in a sense can say, hmm, I didn't get that right. Put it back in the hopper, right? Things like that. So so more and more data make these things better and better. And we now have these technologies of how to do it and enough computer power. So, so uh, this neural technology, this brain-like technology, right? 30 years ago, there was a burst of this stuff. But the real problem was there just wasn't enough computer power to solve big problems with it. And new techniques got invented during that time. But then as computer power has caught up with the needs, now we can – deep learning is done by doing these very complex things with millions of things. And they run on the most powerful computers we have today. It can take weeks till they you know, get, their, get trained to where they're really doing well. But then they're doing incredibly well. 
What are the social impacts of artificial intelligence? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors Returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Jim Hendler of Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute and co-author of Social Machines, The Coming Collision of Artificial Intelligence, Social Networking, and Humanity. So, uh, Jim, you mentioned Siri, you mentioned a couple of the other uh, technologies out there. Um, What does the future of personalized AI assistance look like from your perspective? Yeah, so I think what we're going to see is constant improvement in terms of just their ability to do the thing they do now, which is answer a question, find you the music, tell you what's playing at the local theater, those kind of things. But we're also seeing a lot of research going now into how to make them better in the sense of having a conversation. So we differentiate usually what we call a chatbot, which is a... Um, an interactive computer system that you converse with in a narrow domain. So I'm asking um, nowadays when I go to my airline and I'm trying to interact with something, or, or um, you know, you can get online nowadays and have a have a discussion with someone who helps you fix your computer. And actually, you know, sort of in the early stages of that, you may actually be talking to a computer, or a computer may be gathering information that will then help the person when they jump in. And some of that actually is just an economic issue at the moment. It's still cheaper to have people for certain kind of problems, but like deep. um, So if you're a help desk for a a mainframe or something like that, which is a very, very complex device with many, many things, and the, the, the user manual, quote unquote, is, you know, 20 volumes and thousands of pages. That's not something where, you know, kind of you can look it up yourself to figure out what's wrong. So you're calling a help desk. Well, so, for example, some of these technologies now will ask you what's wrong, go through, interact with you, 
build up a little case. Then it'll go to those volumes and find sort of the most relevant parts. And then a human comes online who actually now knows what are the symptoms you're having, what are some of the parts of the document that might be useful, things like that, and is able to then really help you quickly without having to either know everything because that's a constantly changing set of documents or, uh, you know, go through, you know, used to be try this, now try this, now try this, now try And, you know, if you have a big complex system, that's horrible. Yeah. Horrible, even with a small system. <laughs> um, and again, finding the relevant information and that stuff. So um, I often go, you know, I have a problem with my computer. I type in the error. I find 50 different chats all talking about that same error and some are for a different computer and some are for a different operating system. I just want the, the computer to say for me, maybe these are the three or four things that might be most relevant to your problem. And same thing with health, right? I'm trying to decide between two different operations and you know, I can find lots of medical literature. I can't quite understand it. I'd like to know what are the key differentiators for someone my age, my sex and my general health or something like that. So all of these things are still very much in that space of um, putting together lots of different kind of information, personalizing it, doing it. So now those personal assistants right now have access to a lot of information about our lives but don't really use it very much. So, so the chatbot is able to converse about that very narrow domain and the the question-answering technology is able to answer lots and lots of different questions, but sort of very, very – not very deep. Mm -hmm. And so now imagine when you can start going to Alexa and say, OK, I'm trying to solve this problem. Right? I have a legal issue. You know, I, I've just got this letter in the mail that says uh, you know, that if I have this thing and that thing, then I could join a something class. And blah, blah. What does that mean? Should I do it? Things like that. I'm not really asking the computer, should I do it? I'm asking the computer, what do I need to know? What are the implications? Uh, and, you know, I mean, what I really want to know may not be in the document, which is, is this going to take a lot of my time? You know, it's, it's talking about giving me 20 bucks. And if it's going to take me, you know, days of going into a courtroom, I'm not doing it. But if it's going to give me $2 million, Let's talk. You know? so, so again, a lot of these kind of things, you can see where we're still back at that context and that, but the computer getting more and more as a personal assistant able to help you. And by the way, I'm, we're talking kind of when you talk about a, some of these things, you're talking about something for a general audience, right? My, when I'm at home, my, my Google Home or my Alexa or my Siri. But now we're also looking at those things to help lawyers with legal decisions and accountants with accounting decisions and we went through the whole doctors with medical decisions. So all of those areas, we're seeing more and more inroads where the assistant in these AI assistants could be much more powerful for that domain and, and tailored to really help people and find the right information. So it's a new way of getting at that thing we were talking about before, which is the human and computer together being I mean, extremely powerful. Social machines is a wonderful job of taking something that on its face, it's very complicated, and it, and, it, it, and it is, but it makes it very easy to read and understand the implications of the future. But what you also do is kind of give a nice little education to folks, give them the foundation that maybe they're not as adept at this particular topic. And, and, and so I would like you to take some time and just describe for us the Medcalf law and uh, how do networks work as multipliers, particularly how does this apply to humans aiding Machines. 
So Metcalf's law is actually a, a simple concept that's actually very debated and has lots of issues. But it's roughly speaking um, – so there are some technologies where if you buy five of these things, you'll, you, you're kind of five times as powerful. Okay. And there's other technologies where if you buy five of these things, you're sort of 25 times as uh, powerful, and that's called the network effect. So, for example, a telephone, right? If one person has a telephone, it's useless. If two have a telephone, they can only each talk to one other person. When you have three, they can each talk to two other people. When you have 300, that number becomes very high. When you have 3,000, you know, you're starting to get into modern telecommunications, and, and we now have millions, right? So, so the number of people you can call grows exponentially with the number of te people who have telephones. It doesn't grow linearly or, or, or some other mathematical function. Um, there's things beyond that. So for some of these social machines, one of the things we've been learning recently is you could be looking at subgroups. So if I have 100 people, not only could they each call one other person, but how many groups of people could they call? So if we said how many groups of five could you create, that's a very big number in its own right and is a different number. So, so when we're looking at humans aided by computers, for everybody who's sort of in that network, so for all your Facebook friends, you suddenly have a network effect because you can not only see what your friends are sharing but also friends of friends. And you can see something that was shared by one friend and say, hey, I'm going to share that with other people and on and on. So um, that's kind of this multiplier by the network. And one of the things the computer can do is help us figure out what – I used the example before. What other human might be able to help me with this? Why, where could I go look for this information? Right? I, I rarely ask it a Jeopardy question, but I ask it a lot of things that are sort of like Jeopardy questions as a piece of solving a bigger problem. Right? OK. So what is the difference between these two operations? OK. It has something to do with recovery time. OK. What is the recovery time? Why is that? Different Is there something that in my situation would be different? So again, all of these things, the more different things it can look at, the more different ways. Now, imagine we have this computer that's good at medical, this computer that's good at legal, this computer that's good at driving me around, things like that. And now I want to make an appointment to get to my doctor, but also my brother-in-law has to take uh, you know, I'm going to take my mother to the doctor. Then my brother-in-law is going to pick her up and take her to the lawyer. Now, all of a sudden, all these different things start to do it, and we want to coordinate our activities. So, um, years ago, we had a, a paper on something called the semantic web, which is really a technology that can power some of these social machines. And and we used the example of just a couple people trying to do exactly the schedule some medical appointments for their parent. It's still hard even though the scheduling systems are online, the calendars are online, things like that. And, and again, it's because you need a lot of different kinds of information to be blended together and that's still the really hard part and this, this network effect thing says, well, but what if we had this many computers, each of whom sort of know this stuff and this many people each of know this stuff and now look at all the different possibilities we have for a small configuration to help me solve a, a really hard problem. And you, you point out I mean, when, you, when you have that exponential um, uh, growth, you, you know, you, 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 there's dangers to that. 
And um, I wanted you to highlight some of the dangers that unregulated usage of these new technologies can create. I'm going to split into sort of two sections. So one is the dangers of just using the technology wrong. The other one is is more the social impact sure. dangers and, and we sort of alluded to that before and I said I would get back to it. <laughs> um, so, so one issue is, is again, I, I mentioned it before, that we're using stuff off of data. We have biases. We have things like that. So, and the computers, you know, again, our best AI technology is still only getting things in the 80 or 90 percent rate lane. So, so a big Supreme Court case that happened recently was um, there is some software that's used to help make recommendations about how likely is someone to – so someone who's just been convicted, how likely are they to – Create, create another crime. Uh, and judges use that in sentencing. And the company that gives out, the, you know, that developed that won't show you what's inside the box. So people were saying to the Supreme Court, it, it actually went all the way to the Supreme Court, um, we don't know what data went in. We don't know why it's making this. So how can we, you know, if it says, if we look at two different people and it says this one should go for five years and this one should go for three, should judges be allowed to use that? And interestingly, the the lower court and um, then the Supreme Court decided not to review it, said as long as the judge is in the loop, right, as long as there's a human looking at that and other stuff, then it's just one more input and we're not going to rule it out. And some of us don't like that so much because, again, you're – because now you look at the judge and he says he's got this artificially intelligent box that's telling him this guy is a danger and his intuition is saying, well, you know, I'm not so sure. You know what? If I release this guy and he gets in trouble, I'm not going to get reelected. And if I follow what the box said, then if I get a, something happens, I say, but the box, box said. You know? <laughs> um, and we and we actually are starting to use computers more and more that way. And now think about that in military operations. And now started thinking about that in, you know, again, all these things with that gray area that we said before, the human is better. So, you know, famous examples in... Uh, nuclear war and missiles where, where people overruled the machines and sort of saved the world. And, uh, you know, most of these things aren't quite that, that big, although recently I know there's been a lot of stuff going on at the UN about do we ban autonomous weapons? Mm -hmm. That precisely for these re reasons. We don't know how they're making the decision. We have some test data, right? And is that good enough? Okay. Other half of this problem, of course, is now we've talked about you know, autonomous vehicles. Well, you know, um, in the U.S., uh, roughly 2 percent of the workforce is truck drivers. And I think it goes up to 8 to 10 percent. I forget the exact number when you're talking about people who drive for a living, cab drivers, Uber drivers, limo drivers, et cetera. Okay. Now, all of a sudden, you have autonomous cars coming on the scene over the next 10 years, right? You have a lot of people unemployed. Now, historically, New technologies create new jobs, but not really for the same people who are put out by the old jobs. So, you know, look at look at look at having a million and a half unemployed truck drivers out there. It's a, it's a scary thought, right? And yes, their children's children will eventually be, have cool new jobs as robot something or others, right? But uh, it, but it's that it's that couple that's transition is a very scary time, and we actually see. 
some of those issues playing out in the current body politic, not so much from the AI, just from the technology change. Now imagine adding in at that. And then the second thing is a set of jobs that have always been assumed to be sort of safe from automation fall into a different category. And this is um, – Again, we talked about the thing that helps the doctor, the thing that helps the lawyer. So right now, if you look at a law firm, each of the sort of senior lawyers is supported by a bunch of law clerks. Now imagine you can make those law clerks with a computer way more productive than they are now because they can now get much faster. So you still have a human and a com and humans and computers. But now suddenly you're talking about one law clerk who could support several lawyers. That that suddenly means you have a lot of people out of work who who are – I mean we're not talking an uneducated, yeah. you know, uh, untrained skill set. We're talking about people who went to law school, right? Uh, let alone we also have a replacement issue. OK. So if, if less of these people who are up and coming are going to be the senior lawyers, where are the new senior lawyers going to come from? Well, we'll just automate them. With, yeah, well, <laughs> well, that's that's part of the issue is, you know, sort of will, we, will the AI push up? Will it, where, where will we hit the level? So we're looking at, at, at a lot of potential um, cultural disturbance that really needs to be thought about and it has issues having to do with understanding the AI on one hand and the impacts of deploying the AI. And in fact, there's a um, there's a, a group out there now. It's supported by a number of companies, uh, including Google, including IBM, including Microsoft, so the big AI players mm -hmm. and um, a number of academics is really about how we start thinking about the policy and the ethics and the accountability as we do this. So just as there's a field of medical ethics that really helps doctors and medical um, researchers decide when is it ethical to test something one way and when isn't it. And, you know, it's not an easy decision. It's sort of if the drug hasn't been tested through level three clinical trial, blah, 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 it's not allowed to be done unless there's an imminent danger from not doing that. And so you're starting to get into judgment calls again and, and, you know, we're looking at a lot of interesting things in that space. So there's this AI community which is sort of informed by a lot of these issues of social machines and that's part of what, why we wrote the book was to help people get a better understanding of what these boundaries are, what these contexts are, what are some of the things that might be coming down pike because some of these things don't have a technical – Solution: Do we allow autonomous cars, you know, to drive in our cities when we know they would reduce the total number of accidents, but are going to put people out of work? That's not a technology issue. That's a social issue. That that. But but if you don't know what that technology is, what are some of the impacts of that technology? And again, now look at that when it's lawyers and doctors and these decision makers, that's that's really what we face as a society. In our book, we don't propose an answer, we say, but the population better understand these things because you're going to be asked to be involved in political decisions and ethical decisions that really depend on, on some understanding of, of these things. What's the promise of social machines? Well, again, I think the the real promise is that a lot of the problems that face us as society at the big scale, climate change, fresh water usage, 
uh, land use. I mean, on and on and on. All of these things. So if you look at the UN's list of, you know, the hundred problems that they'd like to solve, poverty, health issues, all of those things are very hard, can't be solved by like, you know, it's not one set of medical specialists will work on this area and suddenly they'll have the miracle cure. You could imagine that for a particular disease. Even there, you tend to have big groups. But you know, when you talk about these big societal changes and things like that, we're looking at a world where a lot of hard problems become kind of existential threats. And those existential, th you know, some people say the existential threat is using the AI. I think the existential threat is ignoring the AI that could help us potentially realize that that the idea that this guy is proposing over here for climate for for carbon sequestration could actually work if he if you use this approach that this guy is doing, but you'd have to sort of build this kind of broker that these guys are talking about, and they're all in different places, not even aware of each other, right? If you can start getting that kind of network effect, that's when we really might be able to start finding new ways to attack some of these big problems. And again, we think it needs that humans doing the creative and context-dependent part, mm -hmm. computer doing a lot of that, bookkeeping, interacting, but now becoming smarter and smarter about, you know, maybe these things go together and not so much solving the problem but bringing together the community that can solve it and that would be a big deal. Jim, would you tell us more about your role as director of the Institute for Data Exploration and Applications? Yeah, so at Rensselaer Polytechnic RPI, we're, we're actually looking at a very different approach to how to bring some of these technologies, the AI, the data science, et cetera, to the campus. Mm -hmm. And where a lot of groups have created an institute that pulls the data scientists together as a new department, we're really saying every scientist, every engineer, every architect, every social scientist, the business people, all of them need the power of data, machine learning, and this AI technology. So what we created is sort of a virtual institute that, that with tentacles out to all of the campus trying to do it. And then we have centers within that. So I mentioned that we have the Health uh, Empowerment Center that IBM funds. We have several other centers that are coming from government and things like that. And we're really trying to sort of therefore help people form these groups. So, so while we wait for the AI to get to where it can do the network effect of bringing people together, we're trying on campus to find ways to bring people together to solve these bigger problems, to really face the global challenges and kind of where these technologies are applied by creating things that break down the traditional academic barriers. And we sometimes use the term the new polytechnic to mean the polyform, right? It's not chemist or biologist or physicist or engineer. It's all of those together solving bigger problems. Great. Jim, thanks for joining me today. It's been a wonderful conversation and I really enjoyed your book, Social Machines. Thank you. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Jim Hendler of Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute and co-author of Social Machines, The Coming Collision of Artificial Intelligence, Social Networking, and Humanity. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. 
Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. It is important for senior government leaders who are moving on from public service to share their reflections on the work they did and the missions they pursued. Join Michael Keegan as he welcomes Dave Grant, former Associate Administrator of FEMA's Mission Support Bureau, to reflect on his public service career and his leadership roles. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. 